Roger Citron. I'm a professor of law and the associate dean for research and scholarship at Toro College, Jacob D. Fuchsberg Law Center. Uh, this podcast today is brought to you by the Toro Law Review. And our guest today uh, is Tiffany Graham, who is my colleague at Toro Law School. Professor Graham is an associate professor of law, and she is also uh, the Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion. Tiffany, thank you for doing the podcast today and joining us. Thank you for having me. And our subject today is one that has generated a substantial amount of attention recently in the news media. It's the Supreme Court's, quote, shadow docket, end quote. And uh, you know that when I sent the email around uh, to the faculty, I, a couple people responded, ooh, shadow docket, what's that? Um, and so we should start there so that everyone knows what we're talking about. What is the shadow docket? So when you think about the court's docket as a general matter, it's useful to think about its merits docket and then its non-merits docket. Its merits docket is the 60 to 70 cases where it has um, uh, agreed to hear the full-on case, where it has granted the cert petition and these are the cases that we tend to hear about in the news. But then we have the non-merits docket where there are procedural orders that have been issued. There are emergency petitions um, that have been granted and orders have been issued. That's the shadow docket. And the reason that the shadow docket is in the news is because in the past, these decisions were not controversial because the Supreme Court was not issuing decisions that were particularly substantive on this docket. But in recent years, that tendency has changed and we're starting to see an increasing amount of substantive decision-making that is happening on the shadow docket, despite the fact that we don't see full briefing on the shadow docket, we don't see full argumentation on the shadow docket, we see incomplete reasoning from the, from, from the decisions that are issued on the shadow docket. The orders are unsigned that come from the shadow docket. All of this is deeply non-transparent and it's incredibly problematic. And these decisions that are now carrying precedential weight in various circumstances are beginning to cause a lot of concern. They've been causing concern for legal scholars for several years, but now Congress is starting to get concerned too. Yeah, there's a lot to what you said. And let me go back um, by asking you to provide an example or two um, of a recent case that has really um, captured the attention or and uh, to some extent invited criticism of the court, whether it's uh, in the media or uh, has generated the type of congressional attention that you've referred to. What are some examples? I'll give you a comparison. Um, think about it in the context of the um, religious freedom slash COVID decisions that came down recently versus the Texas abortion case. So really starting with 
uh, last Thanksgiving in the Roman Catholic Diocese case that was filed against Governor Cuomo, actually. We saw the Supreme Court issue a shadow docket opinion where they essentially said that um, exceptions that had been granted to, well, actually, let me back up a moment and, and, and give a little bit of background. There was an old Supreme Court case that said that uh, neutral laws, which applied across the board to everybody, um, would apply to religious actors too, even if they were burdened in their religious practice. Religious actors oftentimes wanted exemptions from these neutral laws and the Supreme Court said, no, um, you can't get them unless what's really happening is these laws are not in fact neutral. Well, the Supreme Court started moving in the direction last fall of saying, hmm, we're not so sure about that rule anymore. And instead, what we're seeing in the COVID context is all of these neutral laws that exist regarding quarantine and these neutral laws regarding shutdowns. But then we see these exemptions that have been made for secular businesses like grocery stores and liquor stores, et cetera. But you have not made the same exemption for churches. And so the Supreme Court was saying, if you're going to make an exemption for secular businesses, then you're going to have to make the same exemption for, for religious businesses, regardless of the reason for why you made those exemptions. And so what they began to do was move in the direction of upending this old doctrinal principle, even though the state had reasons for doing what it was doing. And, <coughs> excuse me, and while one might think that that was a sensible thing for the court to do, the problem was the court did it in a non-transparent way. They weren't using briefing to do this. They weren't using a full argumentation schedule. The decisions were not signed. And eventually they issued another opinion in the spring that really hammered this idea home. So that happened in the context of religious freedom in COVID where the court seems to have come very close to undermining this longstanding con law principle regarding the manner in which we treat religious exemptions to neutral rules. On the other hand, we have the Texas abortion law, where very recently the state of Texas passed a statute that said um, abortions that abortions can't be done after the six week period. That's blatantly unconstitutional. There's no question, it just is. But even worse, what they said was state actors are not allowed to um, enforce violations of that law. What they did was they outsourced enforcement of that rule to private actors, which basically means that it's incredibly difficult to figure out who you sue. If you are a clinic um, and you want to test the constitutionality of that provision and try to get it enjoined, you don't know who to sue because you could theoretically um, have to bring anyone in the state of Texas into court. So in any event, when the 
when, 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 a, when a particular clinic did file suit and what they did was they tried to enjoin the courts. They tried to tell the Supreme Court, don't allow the courts to accept these lawsuits. The Supreme Court on its shadow docket issued a decision saying, no, we're not going to enjoin the courts. Now, one might think that was the proper thing for them to do because one, there are serious procedural questions that are at stake in a case like that. Two, you know, this was an instance where they weren't using their emergency power to issue a decision that would potentially change the law, et cetera. One might think that was smart, but here's the thing, here's what's problematic they allowed a blatantly unconstitutional decision to stand. And based on the way the court behaved in the religious freedom cases, it is incontrovertible that if the state of Texas or the state of New York, the state of California, if they had issued, a, if they had passed a statute that had equally blatantly violated religious liberty, there is no way that the court's conservative majority would have chosen to disregard it and sort of blind eye what had happened in that case. So what we have here is a controversy that has arisen based on the way that it is approaching shadow docket rulings that are inconsistent and yet both rulings are aligned with the ideological preferences or the assumed ideological preferences of the conservative majority, where on the one hand, they gave preference to religious freedom. And on the other hand, they allowed an anti-abortion ruling to go into effect. Yeah, and there's a number of aspects to what you say that I, I think are interesting. Um, and Let's sort of, you know, if only for somewhat of a devil's advocate approach, um, as to the pandemic cases, and by that I mean the first set of cases you talked about, which began with the New York case, and then uh, there was another case from out west. I can't remember whether it was California or Nevada, maybe it was both. Um, but in any event, in, in that set of cases, um, given that the pandemic is an emergency-like situation, um, does that in some way create a situation that warrants or justifies um, this kind of pole vault to the Supreme Court um, and you know, a consequential decision or, or an ensuing decision from the shadow docket? That is because the pandemic is either a national emergency or something akin to a national emergency, um, uh, does that in some way uh, create sort of a situation which warrants or justifies, um, you know, a prompt decision through uh, a ruling on the non, you know, a non-merits type decision using the language you used before? So that's the first sort of question I want to get to is, is there something unique or special about the, the pandemic cases that perhaps justifies the courts acting intervening in that case? No. And the reason I say no is because the emergency does not justify a permanent change in the law. 
if anything, the emergency would justify a temporary change in the law. And what the court has done is altered doctrine in a way that number one is precedential and number two, we're pretty sure is not going to change anytime soon. I mean, they have not fully announced that this, um, this, this, this doctrine of longstanding is gone. And the main reason they have not done so is because they cannot figure out what clean principle, what clean standard they need to apply. But based on what they have said, it is very clear to court watchers and to legal scholars and to litigators that there's a new world here. And the new world is one where we previously did not have to operate under the default proposition that religious actors were owed an exemption. And now we do have to operate under the default proposition that religious actors are owed an exemption if anyone else receives an exemption. So that like an emergency does not justify a permanent change in the law. Um, okay. And one of the things I just wanna sort of further tease out or draw out here is, um, see if you agree with me in this formulation, um, separate and apart from one's views on the substance or the merits of say the establishment clause issue, what's problematic, it's actually a process or procedural point. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're making that First of all, do you agree with that sort of characterization of what you've been saying? And then um, maybe you want to just sort of sort of we can before we move on, is that your primary or exclusive criticism with respect to what the court with the, with the way in which the court has through the shadow docket, you know, issued this series of decisions as it relates to the pandemic and the establishment clause? That's a really interesting question. And to be clear, it's not an establishment clause problem, it's a free exercise problem, but in these, in these particular cases, but that, that's actually a really interesting question. And I would say it's both procedural and substantive. It's procedural in the sense that they are not following normal procedures when it comes to um, evaluating these really important questions. They're not following normal procedures in terms of their understanding of what constitutes an actual emergency. Um, and by not following normal procedures, they are um, rendering these decisions that have incredible substantive value and they are doing so in a way that is non-transparent and deeply delegitimizing for the institution. Okay, now I want to pivot to the Texas case, um, the abortion restriction, uh, the legislation passed in Texas. And uh, one of the things that I was struck by um, was that we can see, we know who the dissenters are, right? There were a series of published dissents. And it seems like in that case, the vote was 5-4. That is, we can count um, four dissenters in that case, including Chief Justice Roberts. Um, and I was, each of the dissents, you know, makes 
sort of a, a separate or distinguishable point about in criticizing uh, the decision not to allow the, the injunction, um, that is to allow the Texas law to, be, to come into effect. Um, and I wonder which one you found most powerful. As you were speaking before, um, I heard a resonance that is like in what you were saying, I feel like it resonated with um, the dissent issued by Chief Justice Roberts, um, joined by uh, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan about the importance of um, maintaining the status quo mm -hmm. pending litigation of the constitutionality of the legislation. That is, uh, by not issuing the injunction, that was, that is a, a change to the law, disruptive, ex, you know, perhaps extraordinarily so. And I wonder if you, you know, if, if you feel like that's the, the sort of most important dissent uh, in the Texas case, or were there other aspects of it that we should uh, be aware of as well? I think that the chief's dissent and Justice Kagan's dissent are probably equally important. I think that Chief Justice's, um, Chief Justice Roberts' dissent is extremely important precisely because he does not support abortion on the merits. Um, and what we know about the chief is he is, oh gosh, I'm gonna say something that I agree with and don't agree with. He's an institutionalist except when he's not. Um, and what I mean when I say that is he, he sees himself as protecting the legitimacy of the institution. And I think that he understood that allowing a statute that was so openly unconstitutional to go into effect was going to take a sledgehammer to the court's legitimacy. But I also think that to be fair to him, um, he also does believe in the rule of law. And what Texas did here was so deeply contrary to the rule of law that he, he couldn't support it. Um, you know, you look at what he did in the June medical case, for instance, the prior summer, where he actually, um, sided with the liberals in an abortion case, not because he quote unquote saw the light, if you will, and decided to support abortion rights, but because Texas, I'm sorry, um, the state of Louisiana had passed abortion restrictions that the Supreme Court three years prior had just struck down. And so from his perspective, Louisiana, was just openly um, violating what the Supreme Court had told them they couldn't do. So Justice Roberts was behaving in an institutionalist way when he issued that opinion. And that's an important thing, number one, to understand about who he is, but number two, to understand about the way that he was approaching this particular problem. He thinks that he understands that the Supreme Court does not have the power of the sword or the power of the purse. And to the degree that 
the country is going to continue respecting the court or listening to the court. It's got to conserve our willingness as a people to listen to it. And when it does things that seem hyper-partisan like this, quite frankly, then it loses faith. It loses the faith that people have in it. Justice Kagan's opinion I thought was equally important because she's just calling out the shadow docket. She's calling out the shadow docket and saying, we have a problem here because we keep issuing rulings that are inconsistent and that are non-transparent and that are unsigned and that are poorly reasoned and we've got to stop. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I'm glad you came back to her because um, I agree that uh, that was her piece or that was her take in the dissent was very much about this practice that has uh, substantially increased. Um, and let's sort of touch base there for a second. What's your sense of why it is uh, that you know, with these um, important cases, with these cases uh, in, you know, on the shadow docket in which the court seems to wade into a merits type decision, um, especially in cases that may be of great public interest. Um, do you have any sense of why that seems to be occurring more now than uh, 10 years ago? That's a good question. Well, 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> That's a, you, you can say 10 years ago. You can say uh, 10 years ago. That's a really yeah. good question. Um, I think part of the reason is because of the increased volume of emergency requests that came from the federal government during the Trump administration in particular. Um, you know, the stats that I've seen vary, but during the Trump administration, the court issued at least seven times as many emergency orders as it did during the, during the Bush and Obama administrations combined. Um, another explanation that you could point to is Justice Kennedy's replacement by Justice Kavanaugh. Um, that seems to have been the point in time when things began to heat up with respect to um, this process, this acceleration. But ultimately, I'm honestly not sure why they're doing it. Apart from those two explanations, I'm not really sure why they're doing it. And if those two reasons are the explanation, that says something deeply partisan about the court and about the current majority on the court. And it's a problem. It's a problem because, um, well, it, it makes me think about something that has happened in the news recently. We have recently seen both um, Justice Barrett and Justice Thomas make a plea uh, for the public to not view the court as a bunch of hyper-partisan political hacks. And the problem with that argument is if you don't want the public to view you as partisan hacks, then you can't behave like partisan hacks. 
And there is a very real degree to which people are fairly reacting very poorly to what the Supreme Court has been doing. And so, I mean, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm sorry that I can't give you a straight answer to your question because I just don't have a straight answer to your question. That's the best that I can give you in terms of an explanation. And I think that they are beginning to understand the consequences of what they've done. Yeah, I, I agree with you in the sense that um, it's a complicated, it, it may be a simple question, it's a complicated answer um, that there seem to be a number of things going on. Um, and uh, uh, I also wanted to note that um, in addition to, to Justices Barrett and Thomas um, giving the, the speeches recently to which you referred, um, which absolutely I think are about this question that you mentioned or this issue that you've mentioned uh, during our discussion, this legitimacy aspect of the Supreme Court. That is to say, um, uh, it, how is the court regarded uh, institutionally? And, and, and so uh, I wanted to note that um, Justice Breyer in his own way also has been um, heard from on this issue. Uh, I think with the recent book that he published um, and uh, th there's a point where you, you have to ask the question about, um, you know, this seems like a lot of protest. <laughs> um, so yeah. let, me, let me go to, um, uh, and I guess this will just sort of pivot to, um, you know, what's going on with the court, which raises these issues that I'm sure you talk about in constitutional law, uh, not only in terms of the, you know, the news of the day or recent cases, but really throughout the course, to what extent, you know, have you discussed with your students the shadow docket? And, you know, I'll, well, I'll leave that as the question, the first question. My students from last year can tell you that I talked about it a fair bit. <laughs> and the reason that I talked about it was because, um, well, number one, teaching in New York and having that big decision in the Roman Catholic diocese um, case come down, um, I was very excited about the opportunity to um, have a hyper-local case with national implications that I could talk about in the classroom. But also um, we have this situation where something unique and extraordinary is happening in real time and I wanted to talk about it. But I also appreciated the chance to really kind of highlight the legitimacy concern that was at stake. Um, you, know, you have this issue where the Supreme Court is making these decisions that are really bewildering a lot of people because of the way that they are making the decision. But also you have this, the, the, the reason, I mean, part of the reason that I kept bringing it up was because I was try, trying to highlight for them the possibility that a case that I was going to teach them that was going to be hugely important for them might very well change in a really unpredictable way. And, um, you know, so it just, it kept coming up. And I will continue talking about this with the students because I don't know, um, exactly how this story is going to end, but I do know that 
we're looking at a crisis. I don't know that we are looking at a crisis that is the same kind of crisis that we saw in the um, post-Brown era. I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I don't imagine that we're going to see um, um, uh, the kind of resistance to the Supreme Court that we saw there. But we are seeing, just in looking at the way that the left is talking about expanding the court or um, limiting judicial terms, et cetera, what you're seeing is genuine rage at least amongst a substantial part of the population. And that rage has to do with a perception, not just of unfairness in the way that various members of the court were selected, but subsequent unfairness in the way that those members have chosen to behave and the way that those decisions are now affecting our lives. And you know, really highlighting that for the students, I think is an important part of driving home the fact that these cases that we are reading, some of them are dry and boring and can be about the dormant commerce clause and a lot about milk. There's a lot of stuff in con law about milk and it's not that interesting. But then there's other stuff that really does touch your everyday life. And I think that highlighting this issue at this moment in time is a way to really make that point come alive. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I drink milk every day. So I would say those milk cases are, are, are quite <laughs> immediate uh, in their effects or could be. Um, you brought up the Brown era and I agree with you that um, that was a period of, because of the nature of the relief and the remedy where there was um, really, uh, it was heavily contested or controversial, um, the idea of, you know, the litigation over this court's desegregation mandate in a way that was generated very intense feelings. The, the other period that comes to mind, and again, I don't think it's analogous, um, of course, is the New Deal, um, where there was at least this period of time uh, where the court seemed to be putting the brakes on the New Deal. And uh, Roosevelt, after being reelected in 1936, um, campaigns against the court um, in Congress, right? This is, this is the, the one time we seriously talked about right, expanding the size of the court um, in the 20th century. Uh, and so, and yet again, uh, we certainly don't have, politically, we're in a much more divided area that there isn't a political consensus. So that seems to be, you know, to distinguish where we are now from, from what was going on in the mid 1930s. Um, let me ask you a hypothetical to which I don't know the answer to, but I'm curious as to your thoughts. So uh, I, it seems like, it seems like of all the cases we've discussed, the Texas abortion case really seems to have, you know, captured people's attention as to what goes on in the shadow docket. I mean, there certainly were, you know, the other, the cases that you described and there have been several others. Let's say uh, that this Texas case ultimately ends up before the Supreme Court as a merits case. Um, and I know there's efforts being made to try and expedite that. Um, uh, and 
Now what? That is to say, um, one possibility is the Supreme Court invalidates the law um, because it, uh, right, because it's, it's unsupportable or, or it violates uh, the framework set up in Roe and essentially affirmed in Casey. Um, problem solved, that is to say, you know, would that sort of uh, put the court in a position of being able to say it was an emergency decision, but uh, here we are, say a year later, and we, you know, we've essentially affirmed Roe. Um, what does, purely hypothetical, where does that, you know, <laughs> well, we're gonna do the other side of the hypothetical next, um, but uh, where do you think that puts us um, with the court institutionally? I'm gonna do the thing that you don't want your students to do, which is a fight your hypo, because I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't grade you on this. It's fair. I, I can't visualize a world where that happens. You have six votes to overturn Roe on the on the, on the merits. Um, or well, what you it. have at a minimum is you have six votes to substantially cut back on Roe and Casey. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I suppose that there are any number of creative mechanisms that they could use to preserve just the fig leaf of Roe. I don't think they're going to do it though, because I think that, because I know for a fact that there are five votes to get rid of Roe. Oh, I, so I'll accept that modification of the hypothetical, because <laughs> as I said, uh, you know, I have, uh, I only have the power to ask questions in this forum. <laughs> Um, and, and occasionally interrupt, um, but but play it out that way. Let's say that it, that's that is what happens. Well, then, what's the problem with the shadow docket decision? That is, uh, if it if if it's clear that this is the court that will overturn Rome, why does it matter whether it was done uh, initially? effectively by allowing the Texas law to come into effect as compared to, you know, waiting for a merits decision a year from now in which they say, you can read that shadow docket decision that our, our decision in allowing that Texas law to come into effect essentially because, as a preview of where we were headed on the mer merits. And because, go ahead. Because every single woman in Texas who wanted to terminate between six weeks and the point of viability, um, who would have had the right to do so during that intervening period, now can't, unless she has the time and the ability to leave the state. And the fact that she now can't is awful. It's awful because she has a constitutional right to do so and Texas has taken it away from her. And the Supreme Court has validated that by saying we're throwing up our hands. That's why it matters, those women. Um, I, I'm not smiling at your answer. I'm smiling at a thought that I had, which I think is going to maybe be my sort of last comment then I'll give you a chance for a last comment. I remember having a conversation um, with a colleague um, about 
um, a development related to the Supreme Court. And as it turns out, I had written something on the issue and he had written something on the issue. Um, and I said something like, uh, oh, you wrote, I wrote the glass half full piece. You wrote the glass half empty piece. To which he said, no, it's entirely empty. There's no glass. This is, this was, this was bad. This was incorrect. It was wrong. He said, that's my, my, that's my position. And I guess I wonder whether, and this will sort of be a chance for you to make a, you know, closing remarks. Um, it seems like as we talk about the shadow docket, um, you know, occasionally I've tried to suggest, is the glass really half empty? I think I hear you saying, oh, we're not talking about half and half, half empty or half full. We're talking about something really, you know, more problematic. That is, uh, that, that shouldn't be characterized as fastly as on the one hand, on the other, or perhaps this or perhaps that. And so uh, that'll be my last question. I, I, you know, your chance to sort of conclude. I think there's something to that, actually. I, wouldn't, I, I hadn't thought of it in that way, but the word that I keep coming back to is legitimacy. And I think that, you know, at the point that you have a legitimacy crisis, you're past the point of talking in terms of half empty versus half full. You really are at the point of saying there is no glass. And once the Supreme Court has chosen to embark on a path where it is squandering its legitimacy by issuing decisions in these very controversial cases where they're guaranteeing that people are not going to trust them because they are disregarding the processes and the procedures that they have used in order to render decisions in the past, we're in a very bad space. I mean, let's be clear. I don't want to be naive about this. You know, going through the normal process is not necessarily going to make anyone trusts the court at the end of the day if they reach the wrong decision it's at least the wrong decision from your, your 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 specific ideological point of view but you make it worse when you take a shortcut when you take a shortcut then you look like you're just you know making use of power. I mean, at least when you follow the rules, then you look like you are at least acting for legal reasons. But this shadow docket stuff, they look like they're simply acting for reasons of power, for reasons of power and ideology. And once they have persuaded enough of the, po of the public that they are doing that, then it's going to be very difficult for them to claw that back. They experienced a very serious legitimacy crisis with liberals after Bush versus Gore. They're experiencing it once again. How many times can this court continue to flirt with a legitimacy crisis in this way? in this very serious and sustained way. Now, again, that does not mean that conservatives have never had legitimacy issues with the court. But what I would say is I think that on the right side of the ledger, um, they have tended to have legitimacy crises with 
decisions and individual members of the court. But as far as the left is concerned, what I am observing is crises with the court as a whole over the course of the past 21 years. That's dangerous for them. And they need to think really hard about what that means for them on a going forward basis. All right. My guess is uh, we haven't exhausted this topic. It will continue to be relevant. But for today on the shadow docket, we'll stop there. Thank you okay. so much for your time. And Thank you. Uh,